Early in my career, I was given the advice that you can read a report or you can go talk to the person that wrote it. It has taken me a while to realize that most of the time, you will learn far more by talking to someone. I think it comes down to that in a scientific field like ours, people spend a lot of time writing down what they did. But when you talk to them, they also tell you what they thought about what they were doing. Sometimes there is knowledge that you just cannot get from a report or a book. You have to see with your own eyes or be in the same room as the person you want to talk to. Have you ever heard someone say that the best people in our industry are the ones that have seen the most projects or deposits? In some ways, this may be the best way to learn in our industry. But with projects being as geographically spread out as they are, and companies perhaps being too hung up on trying to protect their IP or whatever else they feel is important, we probably put up more barriers in preventing people to see as many deposits as possible. For decades, Mike Porter ran a business where he took people around the world to see various mine sites and deposits. These tours were open to anyone, and somehow Mike seemed to get onto every mine site as well. Personally, I was always impressed that Mike managed to get so many people from all over the world onto all these different mine sites. When to be honest, I could not even get myself on other mine sites within the same company I worked in. I met and interviewed Mike Porter at his house in Adelaide in January 2020. This interview has been sitting in our archives for two years. It just did not seem right releasing an interview about traveling to far off exotic places when we were all locked up in our houses. But now the time feels right as it looks like we might be losing one of the best aspects of our industry, the Porter Geo International Study Tours. Our guest today is Mike Porter, so come join us and let's explore. Welcome to Expression Radio, Mike. Thank you. So obviously a lot of people know who you are and we'll kind of get into why they know who you are. But do you want to start off just by giving us a bit of your background? So you started your career with CRA. Did you join the company as a graduate or did you work somewhere else before and then CRA came about? No, I was uh, doing a degree at the University of Adelaide and I did my uh, honours thesis on the uh, Mary Cath, the structure of the Mary Kathleen ore deposit, mm-hmm. which was a CRA mine. Okay. And uh, at the end of the year, I was offered a job by CRA. Those are the days when you had real jobs, and uh, I was offered two jobs at that stage, and I accepted the CRA job. Okay. I just like how you just slid in the fact that that's those, those are the days when you used to have real jobs. So. Okay, no, that was the time when uh, we used to, or the company used to hire what they hoped were the best graduates in the country. Mm-hmm. You'd go around and find, find the best 10 graduates, and then they would be brought into the company. Uh, they would be put into three different settings in their first five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might be in the West, in the Archean, or in the... Uh, Proterozoic, Phanerozoic in the east or in the islands, looking at the younger rocks. The company then developed people. We were given trips to visit mines. We were mentored. And then after the next five years, you wouldn't get moved quite so much. Mm-hmm. But you gained experience in a range of different settings. The idea was that uh, your competitive advantage could be the staff that you had. I mean, yep. sure, everybody can hire expert consultants, but that doesn't give you an advantage. If you've got a dedicated, loyal staff who you've developed and given a lot of background and knowledge, then they will stay with you longer and they will give you that competitive advantage. So was part of that, what you just said, part of the ethos of what made CRA such a good company in that sense from both sides? Yeah, like people 
seem to hang around in CRA for a long time. I mean, you yourself stayed with the company for a long time. I was here nearly 27 years, yes, until there was no more CRA. So do you think that there was this acknowledgement within the company that that's how they should essentially structure the company or incentivize people to come and join and stay in the company? Well, I think it was realized very early in CRA's existence that uh, exploration was a lifeblood. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're a mining company, you're uh, exploiting a, a wasting asset and you must replace it before it goes, yep. before it's gone. So exploration was a very important aspect of that. The other thing too was not the effect of the boom and bust cycle that you mm-hmm. might have in a lot of companies because if prices went down, then you reduce the level of work you were doing. You do more generative work, more regional work not so much uh, drilling. You might remove one or two people who are lesser performers, but only at that level, and then take up the ground that everybody else dropped Mm -hmm. and continue work on on that. Mm -hmm. You might do things like, for instance, in your earlier podcast on the Craystar, you mentioned Ken Phillips. At that stage, uh, the company had been looking for porphyries on a sort of a Nevada or uh, Arizona model in eastern Australia. Ken realized that things that happened occurred in the islands as in the Philippines had porphyry affiliations, went and looked at that. So that was a relatively cheap thing to do, to go and study those deposits. And having studied that, he realized the same environment happened in New Guinea. Mm-hmm. They went to look at the open file reports and recognized the Kieta gold mine and yep. went and there was Bougainville. So that was a chance, that was an example of where you were spending on the low level, but doing quite valuable work. But I guess the key that you're saying there is the fact that you retain people during the downturn. You didn't have this cycle where, you know, people, I guess, weren't traded as a commodity where things went down, you got, you got rid of them, and then you just hired more when times were good. Well, when you do that, metal prices start going up. Everybody says, gee, we better get into copper and start exploring again. Let's go and find some geologists. Whereas then you're competing with everybody else in the market for people who don't have experience. Whereas if you've kept your st- staff and you've worked on those commodities through that period and you're ready to go with something. I mean, A, there's the the money aspect or the aspect of, I guess, finding people and grabbing them. But it's also the aspect that if you keep people, you allow them to develop. You develop this legacy kind of information, which can then be utilized different ways as well. I mean, you, you bring people through, you have a succession plans. But you also bring people in at various levels from outside so you don't become too inbred. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. So you stayed with CRA for a long time. You worked mostly in exploration, but you also did other roles. Like you were saying, you kind of moved around a little bit. Was part of your role as a generative geologist came about because of these downturns? Is that part of the reason why you moved more into a generative role? No, not really. I mean... I joined in 69 and I was running projects, field exploration up to a chief geologist level mm-hmm. right through until about 1990. And at that stage, to move further, I was a general manager in the CRA scheme of things at that stage. Mm-hmm. To move further, you had to move out as a manager into other parts of the corporation. Because by the time you got to group executive, you had to have experience in a range of aspects of the company's operations mm-hmm. to be able to run the company in a, in a collegiate manner. Yep. So it came to the point then I had a choice of I could go off and be IT manager at Queensland Alumina or logistics manager at Hammersley Iron or something like this. 
Mm-hmm. But I'd spent all those years learning geology, visiting mines, exploring. So my strength was in geology. So I sort of forsook that, uh, that role of climbing further up the tree mm-hmm. through as a manager, but rather remained as an experienced geologist. As more of a technical person. As a technical really. person. Yep. So that's an interesting point. So you valued the technical side more than, say, the operational management side? Would that be a fair way to say? Yes. I mean, I have had done my fair share of management. I've yes. sort of run exploration as an exploration manager in a district, and I've run the CRAE information system, yep. range of things like that. So I had quite a lot of experience in management and budgeting and the like. Mm-hmm. But geology was driving it all. And I guess like, you know, you were not motivated to perhaps be a more of an operational person. You much prefer to stay a technical person. Would that be right? Oh, I mean, a particular period, I was very much into the management side, but management of what? Yeah, that's a good point. So part of the reason why we're talking about your career in CRA is because it was during your time in CRA that you started doing these tours around where you would go and visit different deposits in different regions. And that obviously leads you to the work that you do now where, the, where you run these tours. But I guess the, the reason why we're talking about CR is how did the concept of you traveling around and looking at these deposits come about? I mean, what was the purpose behind them? How did that whole thing come about? Well, I suppose the first part to it was that although I had visited lots of mines, as all of most of my colleagues had in the company, in 77, 78, I got selected for the uh, RTZ World Study Group. Mm-hmm. And basically what that was, was that one geologist was selected from somewhere in the group, you know, whether it be uh, TSA or Brinco or CRAE or Rio Phoenix, and put in London for 12 months and given a commodity or a commodity grouping to make a geological story of worldwide. So I was given tin and tungsten, and I went to something like 65 operations in 24 countries on five continents in that year. And that started me off background into world geology and how to get visits and a whole range of things like that. So the question I obviously have there is, was it you that decided to go and visit 60-some-odd deposits, or was it something set up in CRA that they encouraged you to go do it? No, well, I I was selected as a nominee Mm-hmm. from Australia. And uh, I was put in London and I was told this is how it worked. Oh, so okay. I, I went to probably a few more than most of the others. Yeah, I guess that's the point I'm trying to get to is, was it a part of your personal drive to go to 65? Or was it a, a kind of a blanket rule that you do this year job in London, you have to go see 50 plus or whatever it is? Oh, no, it wasn't that. Uh, some people may have done a lot more literature work. They may have concentrated on, uh, so for instance, the preceding tour had been on lead zinc. Mm-hmm. There uh, sediment-hosted lead zinc. So there aren't that many sediment-hosted lead zinc. Mm-hmm. But tin and tungsten, they're all over the world. Did you value going to the deposit and looking at it and, and studying it yourself more than reading about it? Well, a lot of it was had to be literature work because when you go there, you never get the full picture. You have to have done the literature background and research on it. The reports, there's going to be a lot of literature in that. Mm-hmm. But then it's seeing, getting the field truth for what you have read. Yeah, that's right. I guess the, the the line of questioning really is trying to dig into the fact that, you know, like, I guess my personal belief is that it's always easier to go talk to the person that wrote the report rather than read the report. And I think your 
way of reading the report and then going and looking at the deposit is kind of a way of you to discriminate what's good and bad information that's being put forward. Would that be a fair way to say it? This was before the days of the internet, of course, and uh, there were, say, let's say the Bolivian tin deposits. There was very little written about those. And then when you got there, there weren't people that were mine geologists in quite the way that we might expect to see them here in Australia. Or if you went to alluvial tin deposit in the Kinder Valley... Mm-hmm. or on the Joss Plateau in northern Nigeria, you had to really almost start from scratch, or going up looking at alluvial tin in Rondonia in the, the head of the headwaters of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of that background information. You had to try and make what you could of what you were shown. And I think this is a really important point that you make. With, again, the concept that you're talking about is essentially how do you check the veracity of information you know how do you verify the information that you have is is right in in your era you know perhaps you didn't have the availability of information but the problem is still the same you know like now i think with internet we have more information but checking the veracity of the information and knowing what's what's right or what's wrong it still requires some level of due diligence call it whatever you want to call it uh, and so in, in, in your way of going to these things was kind of a way of doing your due diligence on what information you were getting to some degree. Yes, and it's how it's described. If, if somebody says um, the host rock is a grey wacky now, there's grey wackies and grey wackies, and uh, yep. you want to go there and see what it actually looks like. The rock that you might see in the field, you think this sounds like what's described in the literature, mm-hmm. is not necessarily the same when you've, you've gone and see what it is like in the deposit. Yeah, the reason why I'm pushing this is I think there's a philosophical point here which you know, like your kind of business is built upon there seems to be this thing that people always question, why do we need geologists to go? You know, a lot of things can be done remotely. And I think you have to go and test the, the veracity of the information by yourself or through some direct means, not passive means. You know, so the value, and we will talk about your business, but I think the value of your business really is built around that fundamental point. You know, so some people question it, but the real reason I think why it might be important is because of that reason. As I would say, and I'll probably say later, you need, you need to look at the rocks and understand those rocks. Things are described in very general terms. I mean, if you look at the USGS database uh, on ore deposits, it's just got ore minerals, chalcopyrite, bornite, alteration minerals, sericite, K feldspar. Mm-hmm. But you need to describe that. You need to see it. You need to know what that really means, what it looks like in that context. If you're looking at a sandstone uranium deposit, what sort of sandstone is it? What sort of porosity is it? What color is it? Mm-hmm. That's not something can be readily readily recorded. Yeah, and I think uh, that's exactly the point. So let's step back now. So you were doing these, let's call them mine tours for the sake. But that, you... that was just a 12-month period. Yep. Uh, so what happened after the 12-month period? So once you finished, did you go back to whatever your day job was? What, what happened after that? Oh, I came back and I was um, based in Tasmania uh, looking for, believe it or not, tin and tungsten. Excellent. But then uh, in 1980, we did a very interesting exercise because at that stage, CRA realized that China was emerging mm-hmm. and China was going to be a big market in the future. So the company sent a number of delegations to China, which were technical delegations to give advice and exchange information and help the Chinese develop their own minds. And this build up, this the aim of this was to build up a trust 
and connections between uh, China and CRA. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went with a group of people, including Dave McKenzie and others who you've met, and we went in at Guangzhou and we looked at a whole series of mines all the way up to Beijing. Mm -hmm. That was, I was there for my tin and tungsten expertise. And so that was another very interesting little exercise. And of course, that uh, paid dividends to CRA in terms of building markets and trust they had hoped it would. So that, that was, I guess, the second manifestation of this kind of uh, touring around and checking things out. Did you subsequently do it more and more in CRA after, after this time? No, not necessarily, because after that I was into, uh, I was given the job of setting up an information system for CRAE. So I sat looking at computers and getting involved with writing software and encryptors and, uh, and uh, modems being set up in offices around the country and putting computers in refrigerated rooms and all this sort of thing uh, and uh, building databases. So when you left CRA, is that, was that the job that you were doing when you left CRA at that time? No, no. Uh, when I finished that and uh, we'd taken, Lynn and I had taken six months off traveling the world and then I was given this more generative job that started with, uh, we had just found Century and uh, the aim was to look to see if there was other centuries in the data that uh, could be looked at. And I expanded this more in terms of what would be now called, I suppose, uh, all body expert in all body knowledge. And so then I was looking at more generative work from 19, the end of 1990 onwards. And as part of that, uh, there was lead zinc and there was copper and a range of other commodities. And I went on trips around the world to look at examples of those deposits, looking for connections, things that are of interest. You know, for instance, in uh, Carlin type deposits, you have decalcification of the rocks, um, which is, has a lot to do with them emplacement of gold but then in so-called mississippi valley types you have solution collapse and a range of things like that so you know i might go to carlin and go to uh, one of the mississippi valley type deposits and uh, look at what was common what you could learn about processes and the concept there was that all deposits aren't a matter of a set of little models 23a and 23b that you sit in boxes but there are processes of rocks structures textures chemical reactions that all interact to produce a unique example related to a number of processes and understanding the currents of war from that type point of view. I think that's a really good point as well. You know, like if you read the literature on, say, certain deposit styles, you get taught a model that is almost like a, a checklist type of thing that you work through. But I think the more deposits you go look at, you realize that it's not necessarily that. You know, there's some kind of fundamental processes that have to occur, but the interaction between those processes can be wildly different from one deposit to another. Oh, yes. One of the examples of that sort of thing is looking at sediment-hosted copper and the source of sulfur. Mm -hmm. You have something like white pine, the source of sulfur is the orthogenic pyrite that's in the, in the rock. And so copper has come and replaced the iron, ejected the iron and formed uh, uh, chalcopyrite borne on through to chalcosite. Mm -hmm. You go to the copper belt and there's all this, uh, all this orthogenic uh, anhydride through the rocks. And that's the source of sulfur and you can show this quite definitively. Uh, you go to the Kupferschiefer in the Weissligendus and the source of copper is sour gas in, uh, in H2S and sour gas. All three of them produce sediment-hosted, very similarly looking in some respects, deposits. 
slightly different rocks, but they've had a different process that's provided the sulfur. Mm-hmm. They've all got oxidation to reduction uh, processes and so on like that. So it's recognizing that sort of thing and how you can apply that when you look at it in the field. So you obviously came up with the realization that going around and seeing these deposits had value because you picked up these kind of observations. And you're obviously doing this with CRA. And then now you do it as a business. So we kind of talked around this, but essentially you run a business for the last little while where you have allowed people to come on these tours where you organize them. So how did that come about? How did you see the value of taking this outside of CRA into a business that you could run yourself? Well, I'd just like to go back one. It it wasn't totally abnormal what I did because uh, in CRA, if you were working on a particular ore type, you would go and look at the mines that were of that ore type. Mm -hmm. So if we're interested in sediment-hosted lead zinc deposits, well, everybody would go to Mount Isa, for instance, uh, or MacArthur River. People might go then go off to Sullivan, Red Dog, and, and deposits like that, and go to uh, deposits in Germany and Ireland. So that was not unusual. I was doing nothing abnormal uh, through much of that period. Probably what was a little bit different was that when I started doing this work in from 1990, the more generative work, and there were other people doing similar work, I did a few more visits and longer trips. And the other things is the group geologists saw benefit in sending their staff along with me rather than sending uh, separate visits at different times. Mm -hmm. So if I was going to a series of deposits, then they would pick the geologists who would most benefit for that and put them on the visit with me. So who used to organize these trips? Did you do it? Was there a team of people in CRA? No, no, I mostly did it myself. But uh, the thing was that, like with the World Study and that, CRA was part of the CRA-RTZ worldwide group. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was uh, RTDM in Brazil. There was uh, Rio Tinto, Rio Phoenix in, in Chile. Yep, there yep. was RTSA in South Africa. There was Brinco and Rio Canex, etc. in Canada. There was US Borex in mm-hmm. the US and so on and so on. So there were people there who had the contacts. So you could use the, the worldwide RTZ CRA uh, group of contacts to get you into deposits. So I think this is, we, we're going to touch on this all. Let's talk about it now. But a lot of these trips that you do are really run from the contacts that you have. You have to try to get a hold of, of someone that is closest to the coalface. Like I think if you do it on a corporate level between companies, I'm not sure you're going to be that successful for very long. Yes, you do need contacts. So that's, that's progressed. I think I might just backtrack a little bit further to your earlier question about how it came to being the study tours. Yep. When I left CRAE at the time of the merger, when there was a rationalisation and there was a lot of us who left CRAE or, or left uh, what was to become Rio Tinto, I like how you use the word rationalization when you could probably argue that it was an irrational behavior at the time, but that's okay. Let's, let's keep going. Oh, there was a large number of people. There was over 200 geologists in mm-hmm. each of uh, RTZ and, and, uh, and CRAE, and so they did cut back. Mm-hmm. I had run a number of these tours with CRAE. Some were particular for what I wanted to do. Others were I might be approached by parts of the group to say, can you organise a visit? Say the iron ore group wanted to go and look at iron deposits in um, in uh, uh, the Ukraine, you know, Kruvoy Rog and the KMA mm-hmm. in, in southwestern Russia and Kirina and so on like that, yep. where they'd asked me to organise that for them and lead it, which I did. 
But it was fairly well established after about uh, five years of doing this. And when I left, um, one of my colleagues, Bob Smith, who was the chief geophysicist, said to me, well, why don't you continue doing this as a separate business? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in discussion, the AMF was mentioned and uh, the Australian Mineral Foundation, which was a industry body that had been in existence since 1972 and provided courses, a lot of courses. So I approached um, the AMF and they accepted the concept. So what role did AMF play in that? Did they just provide you the funding to get up and running? or No, I, I had an office in their building and I was paid initially sort of consultants rates to run this. And I, the first year I ran three deposits, Archipelago 97, which went to major porphyry and epithermal deposits in PNG, you know, Indonesia and the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And then we did Archean gold and went to look at Archean gold deposits across North America and Southern Africa. Okay. And then we did Ausgold, which was looking at Australian gold deposits with two charter planes bombing around Australia from mine to mine. And that more or less uh, established it. From the AMF, I learned a bit more about running courses and financing and Maybe more the business side of how to... More of the it. business side. I mean, obviously, I had a lot of experience in budgeting and those types of things because I had to budget my other tours that I did. But it was really how to deal with and market and arrange things. So I had the weight of the AMF behind me because any mine you went to would be owned by a member. Within Australia, it would be owned by a member of the AMF. And AMF had an international reputation. Everybody knew who AMF was. People came from across the world to go to AMF courses. Mm -hmm. So if I went to somebody in Canada, they would know I wasn't just a stranger, Mike Porter. I was a representative of the Australian Mineral Foundation. So do you think your tours would have been able to be done uh, early on without the support of the AMF? No. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it makes sense. Like you, you need some, I'm not sure what the right word is, but credibility when you approach these individuals about that you're just not bringing a ragtag group of 20 people from wherever. It's under a banner that people recognize and are comfortable with. That's right. But by the time the AMF went into liquidation, I was established and people knew who I was. Yep. I had people that had come on tours who then I could approach and ask for visits to their mines. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they were willing to try and outdo what they had got so that they could provide a better tour than they had been given as a more reputation for their company. So how many years did you do it under the AMF banner? 15 tours from 97 to the end of 2001. Wow, okay. And then so were there any challenges in then you not being able to do it under the AMF banner or? Not really, it's just I didn't have to give a share of the profit to the AMF. Fair enough. I guess one of the, the points that I, I find interesting about the fact that you run these tours for so long is that you have run it for so long. So, like, you know, you say that you, like, a lot of these tours were based on relationships that you had. But as we know, people are transient in this business, in this industry. So they move on, and hence your ability to probably reach the same person at the same mindset over time will diminish. I guess the obvious question when I look at your business or what you've done is how do you manage to get to sites time after time when the same people aren't there anymore? These days, most people you approach know who I am. 
Mm-hmm. And I had a recent case where I rang somebody up and uh, said, you know, I'm Mike Porter and I do this. And I said, oh, I know who you are, Mike, but I hadn't met this person. I had rung his boss because I'd got his boss's name from LinkedIn. Yep. And uh, his boss's secretary put me on to this bloke. Yep. And he knew who I was. And of course, we'd get a visit. Yeah, okay. So does it take you much to convince people? I mean, I mean sometimes, I guess... sometimes it does, uh, but mostly when I plan it, there'll be fallbacks. Mm-hmm. And if I get knocked back, knock back on one, I'll go to my fallback. That's part of the plan. Yep. It doesn't take a lot of convincing. I mean, I have a standard letter that I, well, a variations on a standard letter that I send people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, part of the aim of that is uh, I'll, I'll say things like course participants usually are usually practicing mid to senior level geologists, exploration managers from a range of companies from around the world. Participants normally possess complementary knowledge and experience. That we encourage them to exchange with our hosts, technical staff during visits, and uh, we believe that such discussion, interchange of information, ideas among peers, is essential to learning, particularly from the a party with the breadth of international experience we normally attract. Mm-hmm. Our aim is that it will be of benefit not only to us but to our hosts. And I think, um, I guess the reason why I'm asking these questions is because I think I understand in theory the incentives on both sides that, you know, when a group of people internationally go to one site, obviously the site people are going to learn off them. The people that are traveling are going to learn off the site people. You know, so philosophically or, or theoretically, I understand what that exchange is. But I still think it's like, you know, what you do is quite impressive in that you are able to incentivize both parties to give up something. And I think that's interesting because having done it in companies, I think it's hard to do it sometimes within groups in companies, let alone do it for people outside your company. Well, I think it's a generally accepted practice worldwide that, uh, that you give mine visits. Yep. I mean, I tell people what I want to hear, what I'd like them to give, but say, you know, what you tell us and how much you tell us is obviously within your control. Mm-hmm. How often do you get turned away by people? Is it often? Um, the last tour we went to Seven Mines, I had get, got refused visits to two. Has that changed over time? Has the refusal rate gone up or down? No, it's about much the same. Okay. The problem at the moment is the safety aspects and it's very difficult to get into the actual pit. Yep. yep. Uh, because if there's autonomous trucks running around, and uh, then it yeah, can be yeah, a safety problem. Right. Uh, and the same with going underground. But these days you go underground and everything's block cave and the, all the rocks are shot created. So all you see is uh, truck workshops and, uh, and the like. Um, so you have to put a bigger emphasis then on to drill core, yeah. which is yeah. what we look at anyhow in, in yeah. real life. I mean, I don't think we should minimize this aspect of getting onto sites. And the reason why I say that is because while you and I were trying to line up this this interview, you sent me quite a quite a hilarious email, which mentions the fact of how you have to go through some of these things. So for example, to get onto a mine site, you have to do the following. You must pass the test questions for the Induction that you do, forward the certificate the system generates to me by email. Should you pass as well as appending a copy of your passport name, photo page, and completing the medical test with an Australian doctor as per form something something 32A? 
You should also sign the indemnity absolving your company of any liability. We also need to know what hotel you're staying at, your arrival flight number, your full vaccination record, full name, date of birth, mobile phone, number, a reason for visit, blood type, emergency contact name, relationship, phone number and address. Also list all the equipment you'll be carrying on site, camera, mobile phone, tablets, computers, any professional equipment, including serial numbers and models. Anything not on this list when you depart will be confiscated. You'll also need details of your insurance cover, amount policy number and issuer. You should also have full PPE, although we will provide hard hats, misfitting ones probably. Also avoid drinking alcohol for 48 hours ahead of arrival. You may be selected for a random drug and alcohol test. If positive, you will be ejected from site. And you finish this email by saying, these are a few of the things I have to arrange for all participants before many site visits. Well, not all of those at any one time, but uh, those are all things that I have, say, in the last half a dozen tours had to have provided. Yeah, so on face value, it seems like this should be an easy thing, but it surely got more and more complicated over time thanks to the overzealous safety record that we seem to have on sites now. Oh, it it takes up a lot of time. Uh, So if you've got people joining the tour halfway through the tour and they happen to be in the field in the middle of the Amazon somewhere and uh, before you go on site you've got to have them gone through a, a medical test and a whole range of aspects like this and then you've got to get in touch with them and get that to the depot to the mine yep. it takes a lot of effort my tour last or the year before last into the Andes I was getting some nights one or two hours sleep while I was trying to organize all of these Mm -hmm. all of these factors. Let me just ask the follow-up is how many people work in the global headquarters of Porter Geo Consultancy uh, right now? There's the uh, there's the CEO and there's a part-time worker. Yep so it's basically I mean you're running this on the smell of an oily rag really so when you're doing it for normal tour is what 20 people 15 to 20 people something like that? Oh yes it varies that sort of number yeah. Yeah, so let's say average 20 people. That's not an easy undertaking trying to to take that group of people around to all these mine sites. No, and there's always uh, there's there's a drama and there's always a drama in every tour. Yeah. So let's hear some like horror stories about some of the tours like what I mean immediately the fact that you like your tours aren't exactly uh, I would say you know they're not a very linear path from a travel perspective you know you go from one content to another you have you're traveling quite a lot so the capacity for things to go wrong is probably pretty high yes that's right I suppose one of the most persistent one was in uh, nickel 2000 where we were lining up to get on the bearskin flight from Sudbury to Toronto Mm-hmm. because we had to make a connection through to Montreal and next morning we had to take the bi-weekly flight to Kujuac in northern Quebec yep. and um, we were supposed to depart at 7.30 and after many delays at 11 o'clock they told us that the flight had been cancelled. Mm-hmm. So I did what I do in these cases is get one of the people on the tour, give them my bag and then sprint to get be the first one down to the desk to organise alternatives. And, of course, the alternative was uh, take the flight uh, in 24 hours' time. Mm-hmm. I then had to impress upon them the money that was involved in this, charter flights, uh, the people from all over the world who had paid top dollars to come on this tour, and we definitely just had to be in... Toronto. So they checked with head office and the head office agreed to put two taxi buses on. So we then did the five-hour drive from uh, Sudbury to Toronto. And then next morning we caught the flight to Montreal, having then, of course, forfeited our uh, hotel in Montreal. 
Yep. So then we got on the flight, that was fine. We got into Kujuak. There was a few dramas along the way, for instance, that we had in the rebooking. One of the people had not been rebooked on the correct flight. And then that was another set of arguments in Toronto to get her on onto the Montreal flight. And then we flew up to Kujuak where we had a charter plane ready to take us out to um, Raglan. I had allowed extra time there because there's fogs at that time of the year and we, we needed the charter flight to get back in to pick us up again to take us out to Kujuak. And that was lucky because there was a fog. But we managed to get in uh, and as we came into land, we could see the uh, flight sitting on the, on the tarmac. And so that was a mad rush into the tarmac. Then the usual story in one corner of the building, the terminal was taken up with, uh, with a whole group of people changing out of their Arctic gear into more traveling gear because we were then flying to Montreal where we were going to catch, catch the uh, British Airways flight to London, where we had a few hours or 12 hours before we did the flight through to Moscow to go to Norilsk. When we got back to Montreal, we thought everything was splendid and we were all quite happy and, uh, and the like. And just as we, after we had checked in, they announced that the British Airways flight had been cancelled because Heathrow had suffered a loss of power on two consecutive days and was completely closed. So then I had to quietly go down and talk to the, the people and say that we really need to get there for the, the usual story again. <laughs> and they got us on a Sabina flight into Brussels and then on a British Midlands flight into, uh, into uh, Heathrow. When we got to Brussels, we thought we'd check on our baggage and we found that half of our bags hadn't left Montreal. Do you mean the bags that had all your Arctic gear that exactly. you're going to need? Exactly. Yeah. We yeah. were going to need it in Norils, yeah. where we were up in the high Arctic again, you yeah. see. So we, uh, the British Midlands flight was cancelled also, uh, but then we got to Heathrow and the whole of Terminal 2 was covered with bags. None of this security <laughs> business or your bag cannot... So we were walking around trying to find our bags, but we never found half of them on that part of the trip. So then we had to set out next morning for Moscow. So we had to buy warm clothes and uh, there weren't any steel toe cap safety boots in at, mm -hmm. uh, in at Heathrow, but buying these at the duty-free shops at Heathrow was an expensive yeah. little exercise. Not that people worried too much about steel coat, toe cap safety boots at Norilsk, but nevertheless. So we got to Moscow and our bags never caught up with us and we got to Norilsk and then we got back to Moscow and our bags still hadn't caught up. And they finally caught up an hour before we were due to get on the flight that was going to Helsinki to connect with the flight to Beijing. <laughs> so the so in the end, did you make it onto the right flight to get to Norilsk? Oh yes, we got on the flight to Norilsk, all right. Without, without the yeah. sort of the gear we normally had, but uh, yes, the we. The only that. consequence was that you just have a lot more white hairs to show for it along the process. Oh no, I mean th this is one of the more extreme cases, but there is always things. I mean, we were in Mongolia, had just been to Oyotogoi. Mm -hmm. And we uh, were supposed to fly out of Vilan Bator at 11 o'clock into Beijing, two hours delay, and then a flight to Hong Kong, two hours, and a flight into Manila, overnight in Manila, and then this uh, 6.30 flight out of Manila down to General Santos in Davao. Yep. And uh, we checked in. It was a lovely day when we, we drove out to the airport and we checked in and uh, we were airside. And when the bloke said, have a look outside, Mike, and it was all white. There'd been a sudden dropping of snow, and the Air China flight didn't land. 
So they said the Air China flight would be back at three o'clock in the afternoon if the runway was clear. So we were airside and yep. uh, we couldn't get back out again because our visas had been stamped. So luckily I was in the right time zone. So I rang my travel agent in Adelaide and said, Gail, help. And she looked at her, uh, looked at her computer and she said, Mike, she didn't use quite use these words, you're stuffed. <laughs> and uh, she continued looking and she said, Mike, Mike, there's a flight out of Beijing at midnight direct into Manila. And that gets in, giving you two hours before your flight to General Santos. Mm -hmm. So we managed to get on that flight and we made it. Yeah, wow. So have you ever had the situation of like someone being left in passport control or because they had the wrong visa? Or I mean, is there a member of the Port of Mine Tours that is still probably residing in some... A jail in Mongolia, Russia or somewhere? No, there was, there was one gentleman uh, who uh, we were flying from. Uh, we had been to, been to a deposit in PNG mm -hmm. and then we were going on to Grasberg. And mm -hmm. so we decided to do the shortcut because normally oh, if you're yeah, traveling, so, you've got yeah. to do, if you're going from Grasberg, say to uh, Wafi Golpu, you've got to go from uh, Timica to uh, Denbasar mm -hmm. to Brisbane to Moresby and to Ley. Yeah. So we had a charter and we were going to fly straight out of Hagen into uh, West Papua. Yeah, which is also called the drug running corridor that basically goes Well, to get into uh, Papua, you need, uh, it's a very complicated process, which I won't go through here. It's not something where you just walk in and yep. you had to fly in through Marauki on the south coast. And the charter operator was very concerned because if anything is wrong with the paperwork whatsoever, the plane is likely to be confiscated and everybody locked up. And that's serious. Mm -hmm. So we said when we got into Moresby, we first got on the plane before we went out to Lahir, you must have your correct visas, you must have your passport. And before we leave Hagen, the pilot wants to look at everybody's passport. We reiterated this several times during the trip. Mm -hmm. And then we got to Hagen and the moment came and there was a very senior gentleman from one of the mining company based in Australia who didn't have a visa. And we said, what did we say? And he said, well, I sent my secretary down and she was told by the embassy that you didn't need a visa for a short-term stay in Indonesia. Because the question she didn't ask was going to going to Papua. Mm -hmm. So we said, well, the um, Air New Guinea uh, terminal is over there. It's bye-bye. You're not going to Grasberg. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, so now let's talk about the fact that you have just now completed what is going to be your last tour. It may be. It may be. Are you doing a John Farnham here where you're going to do a farewell tour every couple of years? Uh, I don't know. I may do a Manelli Melba, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so why is there a particular reason why you're hanging up the boots? Oh, the actual visits and the actual mm -hmm. tour are fantastic and it's what I live for. But uh, all of the other traumas that's involved with it, I can live without. Fair enough. So what's going to happen with Porter Geo Consultancy? Are you going to hand it off to someone else or is it going to stop at the same time you stop? Oh, what I plan to do mostly is, is maintain the Porter Geo database. 
Mm-hmm. That's something, it's a lot better than hitting little white balls around. Uh, yep. It's something that uh, keeps my mind active and uh, increases my education, knowledge and understanding. And so I plan to work on that. So Portageo will stay there as a, as a website. But as for the rest of it, well, if somebody else wants to do it, well, they can organize themselves. There's not really much that I can sell or pass on. I'm not quite sure that's true, Mike. I think a large success of this business is really based around you, I think. You know, the relationships that you have or the, your ability to maintain the relationship. So I think on, on face value, it seems like it could be a, a model that someone else could adopt easily. But I'm not quite sure that's going to be perfectly true, actually. Well, it's not something I can sell because my knowledge and background, it's not something I can sell. No, that's hard. And I think in the pre-interview when we did this, you know, you kind of mentioned that how, you know, you figured out ways of getting into places like Russia or Norilsk. I don't think that's something you can kind of put on a piece of paper and kind of give to someone else. Yeah, it's something that you learn as you do more and more of these. I mean, having done it myself, trying to get into places like China and Russia, it's not easy. Yeah, it takes a lot of kind of, I don't know, uh, knocks to figure out what works and what doesn't. So so that accumulated knowledge that you have, I think, is really what your business is about. And I agree. I don't think it's something that you can just carte blanche hand to someone else. Yes, I mean, I, I've, I've built up a knowledge and experience, firstly, of geology and knowing where to go and what deposits to go to. Um, and that's not something that you can just pass on. Mm-hmm. Also have for better or worse a reputation which again i can't sell that reputation mm-hmm. because that depends on me and my knowledge and my associations with uh, with other people yep. i mean there are tours at the moment so the seg runs a series of tours people like bill chavez goes to south america codes uh, mm-hmm. takes people around so they're slightly different in their approach mm-hmm. but they are there and yep. people can use them. And so I think it's up to somebody else to develop. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, both Mike and I have been on your tours. And I think although SCG and these guys run and no discredit to them or any, throwing any shade or anything like that to them, but I think your tours are fundamentally different. They, you know, there's a lot more onus on this kind of wholesale understanding of a deposit style or a region that you seem to be able to provide that other people don't quite provide. So I think they are fundamentally different in that sense. So in all these tours that you've done, is there a few set of uh, overriding things that you've learned about, say, deposits or styles or geology or what makes something, you know, a good deposit, bad deposit, good operation, bad operation, things like that? What are, if I asked you to kind of name some of the common threads or common themes that have come through of having visited all these things, what would you say? As I sort of said to you in one of my emails is my interest is not operational. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly in some deposits uh, like lateritic nickel, the, the geology is relatively simple. Mm-hmm. And the important part is in the processing, whether it's oxide or silicate and so on like that. So processing and in iron ore, it becomes a, a very important aspect. Mm-hmm. But mostly my interest has been in geology, you know, why are the ore deposits there and what do they look like? Mm-hmm. And it's very important. This is digressing a little but it's very important for people to see it so that when they walk over a deposit they walk over those rocks they recognize them mm-hmm. as for things i've learned well i suppose over the years i've learned things that everybody knows now anyhow but that's to do with uh, the way the world has evolved and how mineral deposits fit within that mm-hmm. and the commonality you know like 
back 30 years ago, we used to talk about this orogeny here, that orogeny there. And it became obvious to me that these were, these were global things. They might uh, roll around the world, but there are things that are happening in the world that you can use. There are processes that occur that form as ore deposits that you can understand and appreciate. So I've, I've learned a lot in that side of things. Mm-hmm. Which then gets illustrated in my in my database records and yeah, cool. So we always end our interview with two questions. So the first one is, what is something? It could be an idea, a concept, a behavior that you think needs to die in mining. Something that we need to get rid of in our industry. Oh, the boom and bust cycle. Good one. I mean, what else? If if you're in growing wheat or uh, you're in farming. You have droughts, but you don't have boom and bust cycles where it costs a for where everybody goes out and grows wheat this year and, and, and therefore it lowers the price and then they all go out of business so the price goes up again and the expertise is lost and all of these things. Mm-hmm. There must be a way of getting around this, the sort of thing I've talked about before, mm-hmm. and adoption by that type of process that CRA had would, would help towards that then it allows you to to even out and to have better operations and yeah have you seen the effect of that in your business from when you run tours like i'm assuming you can't really run a tour like this during a bust cycle i, I doubt you'll get very many people signing up it depends uh, i mean my tours to a certain degree are based on on what's hot at the time mm-hmm. i mean i've done three nickel tours two nickel tours and they have been at times of high nickel price and everybody's looking mm-hmm. for nickel. Yep. The same with iron. I've done iron in the years when everybody wanted to find iron. Mm-hmm. So I can use the cycle. I have to use the cycle then as uh, if, if there's a year when nickel price is very depressed, well, I'm not going to get somebody coming to look for nickel. Yep. Yep. That has an effect. But really the thing is that copper and gold are king. They're the things yep. that you can always get somebody to come on. Yeah. Okay. And so the last question. So conversely, what is something that you think uh, we should maintain at all costs? Something that is fundamental to our DNA that we should never forget? Oh, well, in terms of exploration, it's looking at the rocks. Now, because of my background in data and in, in electronics and, and, you know, in IT and the like, I, I have been very strong on uh, using data and mining data and, uh, and interpreting it. But you still have to look at the rocks. You have to know what that data actually means. You know, it's like if you're looking for porphyry coppers, you can have lots of deposits that have the right alteration and they have the right geochemical anomaly, but they don't have enough copper in them. Whereas others will have, uh, have plenty. You've got plenty of these deposits around the moment that people are flogging with 0.3% copper in and even mining it through 0.3% copper. But none of that beats 1% copper at Grassberg or Oya Tolgoy with all that gold in it. So you've still got to appreciate what's going on. You still have to keep getting new data and you have to know the context of your data. And I think that's probably a pretty good spot to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mike. This is great. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Cheers. As Mike mentioned in this interview, his 2019 tour may have been his last. I checked his website recently and I noticed that the international study tours are in fact discontinued. Maybe in the post-COVID world, with all the travel restrictions around, it would be way too hard to run these tours again. It's a shame. Having been on two of these tours with Mike, they were a career highlight for me. Hopefully, there's someone out there that would be interested in taking over from Mike. I really hope so. Mike, 
for all the work you did with these tools. Thanks. This episode of Exploration Radio was brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford. Produced by Mike Carter and Sean Jeffrey. Edited by Hamayu Mir and recorded live in January 2020. Expression Radio is supported by the AIG, the one-to-one group, and the ASA. Until next time, let's keep exploring.